we are in a sermon series right now called Enemies of the Soul. Uh, if you see the subtitle, The Devil, the Flesh, and the World. These three enemies of the soul, spiritual enemies that we've been trying to understand, trying to get a biblical understanding, and then understand how they relate to our lives, that they will help make us stronger. This morning, as I was welcoming people, greeting folks, Matt McLean kind of struck up a conversation with me. He said, how are you doing? And I said, well, and I started to tell him, he said, hold on, hold on, hold on. You got something on your face right there. And I said, well, oh, okay, huh. And I checked out, it was some coffee. I did a big splash and it splashed onto my beard. But he paused and he pointed it out because he knew that I didn't know about it, but he could see it. And I really appreciate that, man. I want to tell you in front of everybody, I'm glad that you did that. You can continue to do that in my life, whether it's coffee on my beard, my flies down, or any number of like food in my teeth. I think it's important for us to point out and help each other with things that we probably want to know that maybe we don't see right away. And that relates to this series as well. We're going to be talking about some of our, our blind spots, things that we don't know that are going on in our souls. Maybe some darkness that needs to be exposed to the light. Maybe some lies of the enemy of God, the devil, that we have been believing that are causing destructive uh, patterns or habits in our lives. We want to call those uh, to the surface and help one another as we journey through them in following Christ. So that's what this series is about. And uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a recap. But first of all, I'll remind you, it's based on this book called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. I highly recommend this. It goes way deeper than we'll be able to in this sermon series. But it just identifies how the New Testament talks about these three enemies of the soul and what we're supposed to do with them. A recap of what John Mark Comer says about the devil's strategy as he reads it by listening to the text from the Gospels and how Jesus interacted with the devil and the apostles' understanding of how this spiritual enemy works goes like this. And i got a slide up there. Molly, you can put that on the screen here. Uh, it's deceitful ideas. That's the devil, remember, whispering lies, telling you things that sound true but aren't true, that play to disordered desires. That's the flesh. We're going to talk about that today and next week. And then they are normalized in a sinful society. That's the world. So the devil, the flesh, and the world. And that's how this works. Deceitful ideas play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Let me give you an example to try to help us understand this a little bit better. Someone may have the idea planted in their head, I should leave my wife for another woman. Sounds like, I mean, if I say that in church, you guys will all go, that's not a good idea. You should not do that. And this is not autobiographical, uh, by the way. Uh, but it's a thought that somebody could have. You know what? I would be happier if I left my wife for another woman. We're miserable. Maybe everyone would be happier if I just did that. Those are the deceptive, deceitful ideas. That's how the devil works. And it's not just, I said this before, it's not just the devil trying to convince you that certain state capitals are not what they are. Remember uh, the capital of Washington State, we all know, is Seattle, right? No, it's not. It's, wait, it's, isn't it? It sounds like it should be, right? No, the capital of Washington is Olympia. But you could believe that it's Seattle your whole life and probably be just fine. That's not the kind of lies the devil wants you to believe. The devil wants you to believe lies like, you know what? You'd be happier if you bailed on this relationship, if you bailed on your commitment. It doesn't just play to, to arbitrary facts. It plays to existing desires that you already have. That's how the flesh then becomes complicit in what happens. 
in the example I gave, maybe you already have a desire for change. You have a desire for more pleasure or excitement in your marriage, in your relationship. Maybe you've already started to develop lust for another partner. Maybe you want more autonomy and less responsibility and less commitment. You see how this works? That's the flesh. The lies are planted in your head. They work with a desire that's already there that you then feed and encourage, and then it becomes normalized in a sinful society. The people around you might say things like, well, you know what? You just gotta follow your heart. You gotta be true to yourself. Or you say things like, you know, people just grow apart in relationships. Do what you wanna do. It's natural for people to fall out of love. In fact, 50% of all marriages end in divorce anyway. You might as well just get it done now because it's gonna happen later. Again, I can tell by your silence that this is an uncomfortable example. This is probably touching a nerve. You may have had some experience personally with this, but I'm using this as an example to see how the deceptive ideas plays to existing desires and then becomes encouraged and normalized in the community that you live in, and that's how the devil disrupts our lives. We want to understand this strategy so that we can protect ourselves against it, so that we can instead listen to the voices of truth that come from God, that come from Christ, that come from Scripture. We've been talking about the lies of the devil and how that works. I've been encouraging you guys to start to pay attention to the thoughts in your minds that recur, especially the ones that are telling you to do something that's negative or telling you something that is not true by God's evaluation. Like, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I need to try harder or everybody won't love me. Those are not true. We believe them way more than we should. We've been talking about the devil, and now we're going to turn and talk about the flesh and how this works. And to understand this, we're going to take another look at the scripture that Sandra read for us earlier from Romans chapter 8. Because in this passage, we heard Paul talk about these two different characters. They're like roommates that live in the same dorm room or in the same apartment. And one is called the Spirit, with a capital S, Spirit of God. And the other one is called the Flesh. And we'll talk about these and we'll understand them. But what I want to do now is read this passage again. I want you to listen to the scripture that you've already heard, but I want you to think about it like somebody who's describing the two roommates. Pay attention to which one is the good roommate and which one the messy roommate. Which one is the one that you want to give responsibility to? And which one is the one that you need to even take away the responsibilities that they might have? Before I even read it, you probably know which one is the good one and which one is the bad one. But as Paul describes these two forces that, that work in our lives and in our bodies, I want you to pay attention to how he describes it. So just think about them in terms of the two roommates, and then we'll come back together. We'll talk about this in a moment. Romans chapter 8, 1 through 13. Paul says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. 
The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Okay. So, two interesting characters. Spirit and the flesh. Which one is the good roommate? Yes, you got it. Which one is the bad roommate? Yes. One is great. The other one is a liability. But they both live there. Things that we experience, things that we have to deal with. If you let one be in charge, the place is going to be a disaster. But if you let the other one call the shots, it leads to, as Paul says, life and peace. I want to talk for a moment about this word, the flesh, that Paul uses here. Uh, there's a Greek word that goes along with it, and it's a simple word that, like English words, can have multiple different meanings. The word is, is that we translate as the flesh is the word sarks. Uh, turn to somebody behind you and say, it's sarks. Go. Got it. Sarks is flesh. If you're reading uh, the, the Greek New Testament, you might see this term used in harmless ways. It's referred sometimes just to like our bodies, like the physical parts of our bodies that we can touch, our skin, our muscles, uh, or like the flesh of an animal. The flesh, the sarks, is not bad in and of itself. John 1, as he's describing the incarnation of Jesus, he says, the word of God became what? Yeah, sarks. The word of God became flesh, a human body, and, and made his dwelling among us. So this is not a bad thing, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more next week, the duality that sometimes people mistake, like body bad, spirit good, we need to get rid of our bodies, we need to get as far away from them as possible, and get in the realm of the spirit, the, the intangible, uh -uh. if you're thinking, that sounds like a good plan. Or if you're thinking, that's what Paul sounds like he's saying here, not exactly. Like I said, we'll talk about that more next week. But the flesh, when it's used in the New Testament, can just be referred to that which is part of our bodies, the things that you can touch. But it's also used to describe our uh, desires, the urges that we have within us. Sometimes it's referred to, and you have to learn in context which one it's referring to, but it's described as the desires of the sarks, the flesh, or even the lust of the flesh. And it's specifically referring to those that are sinful, those that when they overtake us, they can lead to destruction. And I gotta say this again. Desires that we have, that God created us to have, urges that come from our bodies are not bad in and of themselves. We're talking about things uh, like appetites and instincts and things that sometimes we can't even control until we, we realize that they're happening. 
Philosophers and thinkers throughout history have referred to them as our animal instincts. They are, they are part of how we are designed. Think about desires and urges we have for things like food, things like sex, things like pleasure. And then even you can expand that to urges and desires that we have for survival, for domination, and for control. You might hear that list and go, well, I can see how those things can be abused. Like, if you take any of those desires too far, it's a bad thing, right? You don't want someone to dominate you. You don't want your mind to be controlled by the sexual urges that you have. But again, these things in and of themselves are not necessarily bad. The urge that you have for food is what keeps you alive. It's like a built-in alarm clock that says, okay, you're going to run out of fuel. Your body's going to stop going if you don't add to it. That's a good thing. That's, God designed us that way. The urges that we have for sex is a good God-ordained thing if it's in the proper context, right? I mean, after all, let's be honest, that's how we all got here. Sex. It's not, we can't, shouldn't pretend like it's not a thing. It is a thing. God says it is a good thing. Even pleasure. The, the, the joy and like the, the physical feeling we get from just like a good meal. Like if you had a, just a really good donut, oh, that's a good donut. Or the joy that you feel when you have a stimulating, meaningful conversation with a friend. Or maybe a foot rub. Anybody with me on the foot rub? Oh, foot rub feels good. Right? Those are not bad things. Pleasure is an urge that we have. Even survival. You know, the, the, the thing in my brain that says, Jacob, don't drive 100 miles an hour when you're in your neighborhood. Even though I might want to, whoa, that would be fun. It's like, no, 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 no. Your survival instinct is kicking in, and then it's considerate to the people around you, too. Not running people down in the streets. That is a good urge. That is a good desire for survival. The desire to dominate. That doesn't sound like a good thing, right? Go back to the beginning, and creation story. God said, we want... God said, humans, I want you to dominate over the animal kingdom. Like, put them in order. And I'm really thankful that, like, the closest lion within 50 miles of me is at the Oakland Zoo, and it is, like, relaxing lazily in an enclosure. Like, that's good dominion. It's not a bad thing by itself. Even control, like the way that we take raw materials, like in a garden, and we arrange them to make things grow for the benefit of our survival. Plants and food. Cultivating, that's where the word culture comes from. We take what is around us and we arrange it in a way and it becomes our culture. And it can be bad and it can be good, but it's just, it, it is by itself. Does this make sense? Kind of over explaining this, but desires aren't bad by themselves. But the problem is, we don't have control over our desires. They become a problem when they start to control us when we let them control us, when we don't put them in their proper place, when we have these desires but we don't tame them, that is when they can start to wreak havoc in our lives. Want to give me a head nod and say, yep, that sounds about right. Again, remember the formula from the devil's, for the devil's strategy. Deceitful ideas then lead to disordered desires. Desires that are not bad, but when you put them in the wrong order, when you take something that is good in its context, and say, this is the ultimate thing, it's more important than anything else, that is trouble. We all have desires. And like emotions, they can sort of uh, happen to us without warning. Lisa and I tell our kids this a lot when it comes to their feelings. They're new, and they, they have very strong feelings, just like their mom. 
And uh, just like their dad, come to think about it. They're very, they're, uh, they feel passionately, whether it's a positive emotion or like a uh, negative emotion. But we teach them, you can, you're going to feel real mad about stuff. You're going to feel real sad about things. You're going to feel jubilant about experiences that you have. And that happens to you. We're not going to fault you or say something is wrong with your body. You're oh, so mad. But it's what you do with that, right? You get mad, you don't slam the door. You don't chase after your sister and try to hit her with a toy car, for example, as a hypothetical. <laughs> it's what you do with those urges and those feelings. Our desires can hit us in a similar way. You can't always control the strength of a desire that you have, but you can and you should control how you respond to the urges and the desires that you have. Put them in their proper and God-honoring place. I'm thinking of an example <laughs> that you guys might enjoy because it has to do with a friend of ours, Mick Mao. Mick Mao, a former member at Tri-Valley, Florida a while back. We were having breakfast one time, and I was telling him that I went to see a student play, like a musical at a high school or something like that. He said, man, I don't know about you, but every time I'm watching a play, like a kid's play, I just have this urge to run up on stage and like disrupt it. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, I sit there and I think, I'm, I'm going, I wonder what would happen if I just picked up one of the students and like carried them outside. What would they do? And I was like, Mick, that's kind of strange that you say that because I have the exact same desire myself. And that's true. I've never heard anybody admit that before, but that's true of me. Every time I'm in the dark in a theater and I'm watching a presentation, I go like, what would they do if I just got up there and started singing, hey, and now Jacob's up here. <laughs> that's, a, that's a funny idea for me. But I've never done that. I've had that urge probably every single play I've been to, but I don't act on it. And I don't know if Mick has. Uh, he might have. Seems like might. But I'm going to guess no. no. We don't. We have these urges, but we tame them. We control the urges. But like I said, the problem that kicks in that can mess up our lives in Christ is when we let our desires for food or for sex or for pleasure or for control and domination, when we let them steer the car, that's when it leads to things like addiction, lust, sexual immorality, and abuse self-interest, violence, and revenge, and the list goes on and on, and you can supply your own examples. I think we all know what I'm talking about. They're there. They can be easily disordered. We are tempted often to follow the desires that we have rather than taming the desires and making them in line with what it means to follow Christ. So what do we do? We've got the description of these two opposing forces, these two roommates from Paul. Now let's listen again. I'm going to read the same passage that we've already heard twice over this morning. This is what God needs to tell us this morning. There's something in there. It's not just a description, but it's also what we're supposed to do in response to them. So now, as I read this passage a third time, I want you to listen to what Paul says we're supposed to do with these two different characters that we live with each day. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Side note. Amen. Praise God for that, right? No condemnation in Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life to you has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, and even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So what do we do with the Spirit? Car. Where do we? What position do we give it? Do we put it in the trunk? Do we put it in the back seat? Do we put it in the passenger seat? Put the spirit in the driver's seat. Paul says that the spirit should govern our lives. We should live in accordance with the spirit because it's the spirit that gives life. And the flesh. Where does the flesh go? Again, we have flesh, and Jesus was flesh, and our bodies and our desires are not bad. But when we're talking about the flesh as this enemy of the soul we're reminded that the flesh weakens. It does not, and it cannot please God. This is when the desires that we have are disordered, and it leads to misdeeds, and it eventually leads to death. So the wisdom that we hear from Scripture is, live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. But the problem is, this advice that we hear from God's Word is becoming less and less acceptable in our culture. You're going to hear fewer people amening this the more that we get away from the community of Christ. There's a growing chorus of voices that are telling us to do what you want and to give in to your urges and that doing so is being true to yourself. Like I said earlier, follow your heart is a big mantra that you will hear. The biblical wisdom says to tame your desires and live in accordance with the Spirit. But worldly wisdom says the opposite. And it's strange because it used to just be like, yeah, we all know that we should control our desires, but we sometimes don't, and it can be fun, and it can mess up our lives, but uh, hey, we're still going to do this. That's what it used to be. Like, yeah, we all know what the right thing is to do, but it's shifting. Our culture is shifting, and it's saying more like, it's not just we know what we should be doing, it's like the thing that we said we should be doing is actually wrong. That is a shift that's been happening more and more recently, and we need to be aware of that. It kind of got popularized by Sigmund Freud in the 20th century. The message of healthy self-exploration and self-expression is that you should listen to and obey your basest desire. It's healthy to do that. And if anybody tells you not to, you should not listen to them. That is the new wisdom that a lot of people were already kind of like interested in it anyway, but now that's become canon, and people said, great, yes, this is that way to be a healthy human being. If someone tells you not to explore your urges and express them however you choose, you should tune them out. 
even if it's your family, even if it's your closest friends, even if it's your church, and not even God has the right to tell you what to do. That's the message that we're hearing more and more. Back to the original example I gave. My desire is telling me I should leave my wife for another woman. I think I would really enjoy that. I think it would make me a lot happier if I did that. And Freud, as a chorus of voices that is rising, that is swelling, is telling me that that's what you should do. That's the right thing to do. There's this quote from Shakespeare's Hamlet that people like to throw around. I'm not really super familiar with Hamlet, but I came across this. The quote is, This above all, to thine own self, be true. true. You've heard it before. This above all, to thine own self be true. Not from scripture, by the way, from Shakespeare, by the way. People like to quote this. It sounds good. It justifies the this. Thine own self be actually true to myself. But what people often forget is that in Shakespeare's play, it was spoken by Polonius. Polonius is the fool. Polonius is the person that's not respected even by his own children. He's this despicable character, and he's like, ah, here's what you should do, my son. Above all, to thine own self be true. Follow your heart. You feel right. I don't know about you guys, but I don't need any more foolish voices in my life. I've already admitted I have that voice when I'm in the theater during a play saying, you should go disrupt that. Ah, I don't need any more voices telling me those kinds of things. I need new life in Christ. Yeah. I need life that is led by the Spirit. So again, what do we do with these two roommates? I'll talk about this more next week, but I'm going to give you a little glimpse now because I don't want to just leave you hanging. You might have heard this expression uh, when someone's sick. They say you feed a cold and you starve a fever. Have you heard this before? Yeah. Cold, feed them soup. Make them strong. Fever, uh, don't feed them any. Eat a cold and you starve a fever. I think that's good advice in this case. Feed the spirit and starve the flesh. Paul says in Galatians 5, we should walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says to crucify the flesh and to live in step with the spirit. We feed the spirit by consistently practicing spiritual disciplines. They're not going to happen on their own like we talked about this church. Worshiping God regularly. What you guys are all doing right now. You're living it. That's great. We talked about taking captive every thought, seeing whether or not it comes from God or whether it might be a lie that sounds true that we've been following and believing. We get the truth of Scripture. We get time with God. We understand who we are because we spend time in prayer. These disciplines and others will help us walk by the Spirit and feed the Spirit so we will starve the flesh. We need to identify the sinful desires of the flesh for what they are. We need to use that kind of language that calls it out. We need to be like Matt McClain and say, hey, Jacob, I love you, brother. You got some coffee on your face. You probably don't want that there. He didn't say it in front of everybody. He didn't embarrass me, but he was willing to share that with me. These kinds of things need to be brought to the surface, exposed to the light and then tamed. There's two main disciplines that help us live by the Spirit and not by the flesh, and they're maybe, arguably, the two uh, most neglected disciplines in all of the Christian disciplines. I mentioned them a few weeks ago. They are fasting and confession. That's what I'm going to talk the majority of next week about. But, as I kind of wrap up here today, I want you to just consider 
fasting and confession. What does that look like? I want to challenge you sometime this week, practice fasting. Practice abstaining from a meal, like one meal. Sometimes you're like, I skip meals all the time because I'm so busy. A meal that you normally would otherwise have eaten. Don't eat it. And pay attention to what your body does. Your body goes, ah, we normally eat. I need some food. Ah! It will bring you in tune with just how strong these desires that we have are, are, are the desires of our bodies. I think it will connect what Paul is saying here with you personally on a like experiential level. You probably will get a headache. You probably stomach will be talking back to you saying, what are you doing, man? Or woman, whatever the case may be. And it'll do another thing too. It'll give you practice taming an appetite that you have. And I believe that uh, I'm sure in some ways we all tame the appetite, whether it's not rushing up on stage during a play or not listening to that voice that says, man, this relationship is hard, but I'm going to stick it out. I, I believe that we practice this. But fasting is something that Christians have done for centuries. And they discipline their bodies in this way to say, you, you know what, I'm not going to let my urges decide what I do. I'm going to be led by the Spirit. And I'm going to put these desires in their proper place. Let's fast it. Just give it a try this week. One meal. See how it goes. And then the other one is confession. We know that we should confess our sins. We know that God is forgiving. We know that in Christ there is forgiveness. So when we pray, we, we sometimes just say, God, we need your forgiveness. And we're confident that he's going to give you forgiveness because he's a forgiving and good father. But what we don't often do is practice the discipline of confessing our sins to one another or in the presence of one another. One, because we're out of the habit. Two, because it can be awkward. Three, because it makes us vulnerable and we don't like to admit being wrong in general. It takes trust and it takes practice, especially if we're not used to it. So that's something that I want you to pay attention to this week. Give a shot to somebody in your household, somebody that you're close to, saying, I was wrong. Try that. Or I did something mean to you. That's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. Can you forgive me? such a healing thing when you do it. But, oh man, we don't often step up to the plate when it comes to confession. But those are the two disciplines I want you to dip your toe into the waters of this week. Try fasting. Pay attention to how your body reacts. Try confession. See if it lifts the weight. I'm going to give us a little practice right now, practicing the discipline of confession. I want us to uh, read together a traditional liturgical Prayer. This is a prayer of confession. This is where I will end, and as soon as we're done praying this prayer together, Jeff, Jeff is going to come up and share some prayer requests uh, of the congregation, and then the praise team is going to come back up here and close us out with another round of At the Name of Jesus. But Molly, go ahead and put this prayer up on the screen, and congregation, would you please read this along with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will, walk in your ways to the glory of your name. 